Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. Good morning, church, and welcome. Um, Whether you're watching on Facebook, YouTube, church online platform, we want to welcome you to online church. I hope you're ready to receive because I believe that God has put a word on my heart to share with you today. Um, The word that the Lord gave me for our community to sort of gather around this year um, is the word resistance. If you haven't had a chance to watch last week's message yet, uh, I want to encourage you to go back and watch it. Um, because this message kind of is a continuation of part one uh, from last week, so it's important that you uh, that you watch that as well. Uh, my prayer has been that this word connects with your heart and becomes something uh, you carry into your own life in this season. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German theologian and pastor who started an underground seminary in Germany in 1935 in resistance uh, to the German church compromising her devotion to Jesus for devotion to the Fuhrer. Um, the, The time is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the Church of Christ. This is an actual quote from a German pastor during the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. As the German church's allegiance turned more and more towards towards the Fuhrer, Bonhoeffer, along with some other pastors in Germany, organized the Confessing Church and publicly announced that their ultimate allegiance was to Jesus first. When Bonhoeffer's friends found out about the intensity of the seminary, they began, excuse me, to worry that their friend had gone too far. He had a concerned friend visit him at the seminary to talk some sense into him, and Bonhoeffer took him on a rowing trip to an area where they could could, um, witness with their very own eyes a German squadron in action. There they witnessed soldiers marching in patterns and airplanes landing and taking off from this area as they were looking on. And right there he told his friend, In order for the Nazis to be defeated, there had to be a remnant of people with a superior discipline to that of the Nazis. I am not saying that we're in Nazi Germany by any stretch, but I am saying uh, that there are forces in our culture that are trying to shape and form the church, just as there were forces in Nazi Germany trying to shape and form the church back then. The ultimate goal of these demonic forces is for the church of Jesus Christ to divide her allegiance and her loyalty. And the answer to this is that our discipleship and formation to Jesus must be stronger than our cultural formation. Let me say that again. Our discipleship and formation to Jesus must be stronger than our cultural formation. We must resist the cultural formation that goes in contradiction to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. If you remember from last week, God is calling our community to be a holy resistance to the rhythms, the systems, 
the worldviews and the ideologies and the way of life of this world. Our spiritual formation must work as a resistance to our cultural formation so that we are becoming disciples of Jesus, not disciples of our culture. You can be culturally relevant without being culturally formed. And that is the tension that we have to live in. Our text for today is found in 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 11 and 12. And it says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we're going to be formed as a people of resistance, I think it's imperative that we view ourselves as foreigners and exiles in our cultures, in our nations, and in our neighborhoods. This exilic theme is something you find weaved throughout scripture. The Israelites were foreigners in Egypt, right? And then uh, many, many years and generations later, they were, they were exiles in Babylon. This also extends through into the New Testament where Jesus, Peter, and Paul all talk about this present world not being our permanent home. And specifically in this passage, Peter is calling Christians to a righteous life in a hostile world. And he gives us two reasons as to why we need to view ourselves through the lens of a foreigner and exile. There's an earthly reason and a spiritual reason for this language. So for the earthly reason, let's just give us, I want to give us a little backdrop of this passage of scripture. Uh, the apostle Peter is writing uh, this letter to Christians in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. In AD 64, a fire devastated Rome. Emperor Nero was suspected of starting the fire in order to rebuild Rome in his image and to further his political agenda. As the suspicion grew, he needed a scapegoat, and the Christians were an easy target for a few reasons. You might not be aware of this, but Romans viewed Christians as atheists because uh, Christians did not view Caesar as Lord. And, and and Christians didn't believe in the gods. The they were you know Rome was a polytheistic society. They they believed in many gods, and and so Christians didn't believe in the gods either. They believed in an invisible god. They believed in one god who was invisible. In addition to this, they were viewed as cannibals for claiming to eat Jesus's uh, body and drink his blood. And if this wasn't bad enough, they were viewed by the Romans as incestuous for using statements such as, um, I love you, brother, or I love you, sister. Because of these things, they became an easy scapegoat and underwent intense, intense persecution and martyrdom under Emperor Nero. That's the earthly or practical reason Peter uses the language he uses to describe these believers. But there was also a spiritual theological reason behind this language. And it's this, God is going to create and establish a new heaven and a new earth free of sin and brokenness and believers get to be a part of this in the world to come. But in this world, we will have trouble, Jesus said. So he's encouraging these persecuted, falsely, uh, accused believers to not get too comfortable here because this is not 
your final destination. As believers, we believe in an eternity beyond this temporal world. He's echoing the words of Jesus when he tells his disciples to not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Peter says in the second half of verse 11, as foreigners and exiles abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The word picture we get from the word war Peter uses here is to carry on a military campaign. That, that's what he means when he's saying uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a war that wages against your soul. One commentary says fleshly lusts are personified as if they were an army of rebels or guerrillas who incessantly search out and try to destroy the Christian's joy, peace, and usefulness. The enemy is working very strategically to infiltrate the hearts and minds of Christians in order to render us useless. There is a military campaign that's being organized against us in this battle. As the body of Christ, we must be aware of what's going on or we won't be able to abstain. Peter in this text also uses a very interesting Greek word for exiles. He uses the word parapitomai, which is translated as resident aliens. Uh, Tim Keller kind of helped me understand this word better. And here's his treatment of the word. Uh, he says, parapitomai were citizens of one country and yet full-time residents of another. Their primary allegiance was to another country, and that country's culture was formative for their beliefs and practices. Yet, they lived in their country of residence as full participants in its life. In other words, resident aliens lived neither as natives nor as tourists. Though they were not permanently rooted, neither were they merely travelers who were just passing through. Here's the Apostle John in 1 John uh, chapter number 2. Do not love the world of sin that opposes God and his precepts, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust and sensual craving of the flesh, and the lust and longing of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, pretentious confidence in one's resources, or in the stability of earthly things— these do not come from the Father, but are from the world. The world is passing away, and with it its lusts, the shameful pursuits and ungodly longings, but the one who does the will of God and carries out his purposes lives forever. The Apostle John here is not saying that we should not love God's creation. That's not what he's saying at all. God himself called his entire creation tov, which in the Hebrew means good, after he created it, right? He created the heavens, he created the earth, he created light and darkness, he created uh, the waters, he created plants, he created animals, and then called it all good. We should love and take care of the world in the best way possible. What John is saying is just a reiteration of what we've already talked about. Do not cherish the worldly systems. Do not be formed and fashioned after the ways of this world because they are in sharp contrast to the ways of the kingdom. In fact, we must be a resistance against the cultural norms of this world because we are not of this world. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. We do not love this world because there is something greater we are looking towards. We are not uh, to be inculcated with the rhythms of the world because Christ is our king. 
And we ought to be inculcated with his rhythms, not the rhythms of the world. As parapitomai, we live in the tension of being citizens of another country while being active residents of this one. That means our primary allegiance is to another country. That means our primary allegiance is to another king. That means we're not permanently rooted in this world yet. As parapitomai, we should be working hard for the flourishing and thriving of our communities and neighborhoods. We should be working hard to bring justice into our world and working towards equality. That means we should be walking in enemy love because we want to share with others the love of Jesus. We want to be uh, proper representatives of Jesus, right? Because what is what does Peter say uh, at the end of verse 12 there uh, in, in chapter two that we read earlier? He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they accuse you of being the ones that started the fire that burned the entire city of Rome, though they falsely accuse you of being heretics, live such good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. That's, that's so important that we walk in this. And that leads me to my first point, And it's this, we resist hyper-individualism with submission to Christ and submission to one another. We resist hyper-individualism with submission to Christ and submission to one another. If you were born in America or the West, you have been raised in an individualistic culture. In E. Randolph Richards and Richard James's work on individualistic cultures versus collectivist cultures, they say, in individualistic cultures, you think of your identity as comprising of your individual attributes, personality traits, and what you have achieved in your life. Those things define the way you see yourself. As Americans, we value individual uniqueness and individual self-expression, and there are many, many ways, both good and bad, that you see that worked out in our culture. The difference between an individualist and collective culture can be seen in the most basic areas of life, like how we even introduce ourselves. When an individualist first meets someone, they usually ask, what's your name and what do you do for work? But with a collectivist, they ask where you're from. They ask, uh, you know, who your family is. They ask all of this background information. They, they ask about your work. What's the difference? Richards and James would say a collectivist is the sum of their group, while an individualist is the sum of their individual personality, traits, and achievements. A collectivist person defines who they are in relation to others, while an individualist person defines who they are based on their individual personality and attributes. I was born um, here in America, uh, Kansas City, Missouri to be exact, uh, home of the defending Super Bowl champions and hopefully home of the back-to-back Super Bowl champions in a few weeks. But anyways, I was born here in America, but my parents were born and raised in India until they immigrated to the United States uh, about 40 years ago. While America is an individualistic culture, India is a collectivist 
culture. Now that I'm an adult and have studied these two cultures a little bit, it has brought a ton of clarity as to why my parents um, parented me and my sister in certain ways and made certain decisions uh, and, and things like that and why my sister and I clashed with them so much growing up. A lot of it was that we viewed the world through an individualistic lens while my parents viewed the world through a collectivist lens. And we didn't know it. And so we just kind of clashed and we just kind of thought we just, it's because they're from India and we're, we were born here. We just, uh, cultural differences and that they we can't see eye to eye and they don't understand anything. But it was actually a little deeper than that. It's because we viewed the world through individualism while they uh, viewed the world through a collectivism. So when they told us to not do certain things because of what the family would think about them, we would say, I don't care what the family thinks about it. It's not morally wrong. So I'm going to do it regardless of what the family thinks. We need to, you know, we always viewed it as fear of man, but that's not what it really was. It was the way they were raised. It was actually the way they were wired. So uh, I got into so much trouble as a teenager because I dyed my hair blonde. Um, you know, I was like a, it was a spontaneous thing. I have no idea why I did it. We were, I was at a friend's house. He was getting his hair dyed blonde. I was like, great. That's a great idea. And my hair is so dark that it actually never turned blonde. It was actually gold. So my, I, but anyways, I got in so much trouble, not because dyeing your hair is evil, but because of what my family would think about me dyeing my hair, right? Because family acceptance and identity is very important to a collectivist. We need to understand that the Bible was written in a collectivist society to a collectivist society. And we, uh, in the West, we naturally bring our presuppositions, worldviews, ideologies, and backgrounds. And oftentimes what we do is we read that into the text. But we have to be careful with that because we can misread scripture that way. Why am I bringing all of this up? I'm not trying to show you that collectivist cultures are superior to individualistic cultures. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I believe both cultures have positives and negatives to them, and I've experienced both personally. While I don't think individualistic cultures are necessarily bad and they have a lot of great qualities in them, I believe that in our nation specifically, we have elevated individual rights and freedoms to a place of idolizing these things. They have become ultimate things in our culture and society. The danger with this is that we have believers who conflate their individual freedom and rights as American citizens with Christianity, and they confuse the two, right? They can't, they can't differentiate between the two, and so they just get conflated together. Uh, the, the danger with that is that Christianity becomes a tool to gain power instead of the call to freedom and joy in Christ. I know this because we have a whole lot of Christians who look like and talk like their political party of choice more than they look like or talk like Jesus. They guard their amendments more than they guard the Holy Scriptures. They are more devoted to their candidate than to their Lord. And let me just give you a litmus test because you might be thinking, that's not me. Are you more familiar with the lingo of your political party than you are with the scriptures? Think about that. Are you more familiar with the ideology 
of your political affiliation of choice than you are with the scripture, with God's word. I mean, we've got to ask ourselves these types of questions because that will be the key to to understanding whether we're being discipled by the culture or we're being discipled by Jesus. As the parapitomai, we are called to transcend political structures and social structures. We are part of a community whose Lord and King is Jesus. We are to critique the culture where it contradicts scripture and the way of Jesus because our main allegiance is to him. As Christ followers, we must resist the hyper-individualism of our day and come into submission to the Lordship of Christ. As followers of Jesus in a polarized nation, we should be walking contradictions and to some degree offending both sides because our allegiance isn't to party. Our allegiance isn't to nation. Our allegiance is to Jesus and his scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says this, Now you collectively are Christ's body and individually you are members of it, each with his own special purpose and function. Whose body are we individual members of? Whose collective body are we a part of? It's Christ's body, not our body, not not our nation's body, not culture's body, but Christ's body. Therefore, our values come from him, and we must lay down any values that do not align with Christ's values. Any values that contradict Christ's values and what is laid out in scriptures, we must lay those down. Let's agree as a church community to give thought to our ways when it comes to this and ask some ask ourselves some very pointed and important questions like this. What kind of move of God could we see in our families, neighborhoods, cities, and nation if the body of Christ unified in a resistance towards the cultural formation being pushed on us? What kind of move of God could we see if we unified as a church body? It's more heartbreaking to see the church so divided right now because we are supposed to be a family bought by the blood of Jesus. It's just so heartbreaking to see the the, the cultural divide and then the divide within the body of Christ as well. The church stands on the blood of martyrs who have been killed in order to pass on this precious faith from generation to generation. And I see us in the American church so far removed from what we should be focused on. What could happen if we came together as one body, one church, one community that just wants to honor our Lord? What would happen if that happened? What if we redirected our hate towards each other and aimed that hatred towards fighting racism, injustice, and food insecurity? What if we redirected our passion for politics into a passion to share the gospel with our lost neighbors? What if we redirected our desire for our country to be a Christian nation into our home to be a Christian home, into our business being a Christian business, into our apartment building, being a Christian apartment building, into our schools, being a Christian schools, not from a systematic 
uh, level, but for an or from an organic grassroots level where we are being a representative of Jesus in these areas. And because of that, we're making an impact. What would happen if we chose to redirect our passion, our anger, and our energy towards these things? I mean, everything does not have to be perfect for a true move of God to happen. That's the reality. We are crying and whining about our country moving away from Christian values. But do you know where the fastest growing churches in the world are right now? China and Iran. A Muslim and communist country is where the church of Jesus Christ is spreading rapidly, spreading like wildfire in a communist Islamic nation. These two nations, yet the church of Jesus Christ is growing and increasing and people are coming to Jesus by, by the, 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 the hordes in these nations. The early church rapidly grew under the rule of the Roman Empire. And some Christians are over here thinking that the election has something to do with the growth or the decline of the church. Listen, friends, the church cannot and will not be stopped because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We either believe that or we don't. And I, for one, believe that with all of my heart. And so regardless of what happens in our country, regardless of of, of who's president in our country, who's vice president in our country, regardless of whether as a nation we're moving away from Christian values, the church of Jesus Christ is not dependent on any of that. You can look to scripture, look at the book of Acts. You can look to church history. The church grew the fastest when it was persecuted the most, when it had the least power, when it had the least authority, when it had the least backing, that's when the church grew the most. And the more backing you have, the more comfortable the church gets and the less powerful the church gets. I don't, I don't remember who I was speaking to, but it was someone that was connected to the uh, the underground uh, church in China, and they said that there are, uh, because there, there recently there's be, been more and more freedom for the underground church, but what they found is that um, as the church is gaining more freedom to worship in China, it's become more and more uh, carnal and less and less on fire. And some pastors are, are you know, are almost wishing that uh that it would become, you know, more suppressed in the country because the church was more intense and the, the church was more intentional and the, and the church was more on fire during those times. And so we don't have to have everything perfect for a move of God to happen. In fact, the precedent is, is that the worse it is, the, the, the faster um, the church grows. So, what does it look like for you and me to be submitted to Christ? I think it looks like the parapitomai, understanding our identity as resident aliens, understanding that our citizenship is in heaven, understanding that although I am a proud resident of the United States of America, my eternal spiritual citizenship is ultimately in heaven. It's understanding that the coming of Jesus uh, the first time inaugurated a new rule in this earth by our King and Lord. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul speaking, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because I have been crucified with Christ, my old identity has been crucified. It's been put to death. With it and in my new identity as a follower of Jesus, I can critique my culture where it contradicts my king because my ultimate loyalty and allegiance lies in him. Lilas Trotter, the 18th century author and artist, said this, The Christian life is a process of deliverance out of one world into another. And death, as has been truly said, is the only way out of any world in which we are. We are being called to resist hyper-individualism with submission to Christ and life together with others. We are being called uh, uh, to community, and we need community, especially in this season. We need each other, church. We need to be accountable to one another. If you are a part of our community and are watching this message today, we need you and we want you to be a part of our connect groups. It's important. It's vital to your spiritual health and your spiritual growth. It's absolutely um, important and we want you and we need you to be a part of this. Truth is, I can rile everyone up with a message like this and we can all go, yeah, 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 we're gonna be a, a people of resistance and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that. But if we're not fleshing this idea out in community together, it's kind of worthless. It's kind of a waste of time. I'm just pontificating for 40 minutes without any sort of actual follow through of this, but it's in community that we can actually flesh this out, that we can actually discuss this, that we can actually come together and do life together as we as we grab a hold of this word and move forward together this year. Another negative byproduct of our individualistic culture is that we have lone ranger Christians who reject community, accountability, and the collective nature of the church. We need to come together and encourage one another. We need to bear one another's burdens, as scripture tells us. We need to love one another. We need to prefer one another. This is all the language of the New Testament, talking about community. We need to resist the Lone Ranger mentality and understand we were born again into the family of God. The uniqueness of Christianity is that we're not born again as individuals doing life alone, but into a new global family who are all connected through Jesus. We are all united because of Jesus. That is the uniqueness and the beauty of of, of Christianity is that we are not born again to do life alone, but we're born again so that we can do life together with other believers all over the world, all over the world. I heard a preacher recently say something along these lines. There is much of Christ that you will only see through our spiritual brothers and sisters as we lean into community and life together. That is so true. Let's get into community Let's get into community groups. If you, uh, if you haven't been to community group in a long time and you just happen to be watching this, I want to encourage you, get into a group. Start doing life with others. In this season, there's so much going on. You, we need each other. I need people. I need community. I know I can't do this alone and I'm not called to do this alone. I need to walk with others. I need to be held up 
sometimes because I'm weak. And, and I need to hold up my brothers and sisters sometimes because they're weak. That, that's the beauty of doing life together, uh, where, where we're submitted to Christ and we're also submitted to one another, where we're not going rogue. We don't have this lone ranger Christianity mentality where we're like, I can just watch it from home and I'm good. No, we need to do life together with one another because there are aspects and attributes of Christ that we will never experience outside of being in life and community with each other. Well, church, grace and peace. Let's pray. Hey, good morning. As many of you know, Ticho and Michelle and their beautiful family, they're going to be leaving. They're going to be going back to Texas for a time of rest and furlough. And so this Sunday is actually their last Sunday with us. Although it's very sad for us, we are also very excited about what God is going to do in their lives in this next season. And so Pastor Priscilla and I, we just wanted to say thank you to the Medrano family for everything that they have meant and done for us personally and for our church. Teacher and Michelle, I want to say thank you for answering the call to move your family from Texas to New York City to help us start the Grace Place NYC. I know it hasn't always been easy, but you guys have been faithful. I want to thank you for uh, when I was sick with chemotherapy, for really, you know, helping out and being faithful in that season. Uh, Ticho, thank you. Right after work on Saturday, you would come straight to the school and help us set up and get home late and then come back early on Sunday morning. And you guys did that week after week after week. You helped carry the weight of the church. And so, we are eternally yeah. uh, just grateful to you for that. We want to honor you for being the real deal. People who truly sacrifice for the call of God on their lives. That is something to behold, something to watch, something to emulate in a sense, something for people to learn from and to ask questions from. And we just want to honor you and to let other people know, pick the Madrano's brain, ask them because they hold something quite special when it comes to laying down their lives for the true call of the Lord. We want to honor you. We want to honor your children. Mm -hmm. You weren't just church planners. Your children were church planners. So Halen, Ramon, Jovi, Valens, we honor you. We love you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for sharing your mom and dad with the church. We love you guys. And I know Boston and Avia love you and we'll miss you dearly. We are excited for this next chapter. We're excited to see what true rest does for you and your family, but I know that we can all say collectively as a church that you are special to us um, and that we love you guys. Love and appreciate you guys. Thank you for being with us at TGP NYC. You can listen to other sermons on Spotify or wherever else podcasts are available. For further details about the Grace Place, please visit tgp.nyc.